Welcome, family. Welcome to Connect Church. We're excited to be together. Um, thank you, Miguel. We're going to start off um, with a testimony video, so I'm going to play that. It's going to tie in with our sermon, um, but Josh Gonzalez is going to share his story with us via video. Um, we're going to turn those lights off. I'm going to ask, do not turn those lights off because that shuts off the nursery, um, and they would be scared. So um, go ahead and play that, and we'll get rolling. This is Josh Gonzalez, commonly called Gonzo. And I am one of the biggest nerds that anybody will ever meet. So originally, I'm from West Monroe, Louisiana. And I moved here when I was about 10 years old. And I didn't have the easiest of home lives. My um, mom was brutal, to put it nicely. My dad was um, committed as a Christian. And he always wanted to better his walk with God. And my mom, just she wanted to do checkbox Christianity growing up. And so, but then I moved here and I got bullied tremendously. And part of it is because of the way I talk. Some of it is because you know, I'm a big nerd. Some of it is because I technically have a learning disability. And so I was separated from the kids. When you're separated from the kids and you have an accent like mine, people tend to make a lot of Forrest Gump jokes. And so not too long uh, after that, my parents got a divorce and there's a guy that moved in with us and he was an abusive alcoholic. And so I struggled with bitterness and I envied other people and I was angry. So I was thinking to myself, I was like, why is it that they have easy lives and I have to go through all this? You know? And in college, funny enough, it was March, 2015, I had saw Brent Bilby, and I hadn't seen him in three years at the time. And Brent said to me, hey, um, Josh Gonzalez? And I was like, yeah, you know, how you doing? How you been? And we talked. We got to work out together. And he said, hey, uh, I've got a group of people in my church, and this is where it's at. You should come. And I was looking for a church, and so I went, and I met Brent, obviously, and I saw Kevin Klein, and I saw Wes Franklin, and Eventually, Brent, Kevin, and I did a Bible study, and I got baptized in April 2015. I graduated in May, and then, it's funny, the journey didn't stop there. So, in October 2015, I was told my dad got really sick, and so I had to move in with him to pretty much help take care of him. And that fed the bitterness and the envy and the anger I was going through and so I wound up drinking my problems away and if I didn't have somebody tell me hey you had drove after you had alcohol I would have kept doing it and I would probably have gotten a DUI and so eventually in in April 2020 my dad got sick, he went to the hospital. He was on the ICU on a ventilator for about two weeks. And it was the most painful two weeks of my life. And it was painful because I was holding on to a false sense of hope that he would make it and that I could see him again. And then he died. But the hope that I have now is that I'll get to see my dad again and that I'll get to be with him for eternity because of the choices he made to follow Christ in his life and because of the choice that I now make 
to follow Christ in my life. I struggle every day, still do. But what I would tell anybody is Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will come to you. And that's my story. We're going through a, a series called Because God Is, I Can. And the whole idea of it is not a, not a I think I can, I think I can, feel good, positive kind of deal, because the Bible is pretty honest about the fact that there are things you can't do. They, they're, they, you, no matter how much you believe it, there are things you cannot do um, without His power. But there, if there is a God, if God does exist, then there are things that we can do with Him that we could not do without Him. Right? Moving on was not something that, that Josh Gonzalez was capable of before that. Moving on from hurt, moving on from, from mistakes, moving on from loss was not something in his arsenal when he was doing it on his own. And yet God comes in and he's doing now better now than he's ever done. And, and that is possible because of God, right? There, there would be no basis for that hope. There'd be no launching point from that if there was not a God. And not only does he, <laughs> has he survived it, um, but he's now able to share that it's one thing to have the guts to share your story when you've been bullied. It's another thing to share your story and talk about that bullying. Um, that's just a different kind of courage that's supernatural that comes from God. Um, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for my brother. I'm thankful for all the other stories in here where we get to see people doing things where you clearly would look at them and they would say, would old them would have said, I'm, I, that's not me, <laughs> right? That's, uh, that's AI, deep fake, like that's not me doing that, right? And yet we see them doing it every day. And we're like, man, that's awesome. Like, that's God getting after it. And so this week, last week, we kind of laid the foundation of that we have to trust in God to make that happen, that, that it's not just a feel good, I can do this, I can do this, but that when we surrender and we trust in God, that's when the cool stuff happens. And so in the next few weeks, we're going to go through what are some of these things that I can only do because God is? What are the things that are possible for me now or could be possible for me now because God is? And this week is, on, is called, Because God Is, I Can Be Forgiven. And I'm going to say, this is, of all the ones that are coming up, this is the one that, that hits me the hardest, that's the biggest turn from, from pre-Jesus Adam to post-Jesus Adam. And, and even, I, I appreciate Gonzo said, even sometimes after I've been baptized, making, that, making mistakes and having to, to, but my relationship with guilt and shame and forgiveness um, was one of the most radical things that changed about me. So I'll tell you, if this hits close to home, if this sermon, if some of the messages in here feel a little close to home, I'm there with you, right? I'm living in that house with you, and let's just go through it together and stick it out till the end because the hope comes through God and, and praise Him for making that available to us. Amen. Psalm 38, 4, talking, David is talking. We're going to spend some time. You'll write down, <clears throat> you don't, you'll see them in your, in your outline, but Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51. We're going to spend a lot of time in those. Um, this morning, but I'd really encourage you guys to spend some time this week, make some devotional time to, to read through those and see where David is coming from, from through this, because David in this is singing. These psalms were meant to be sung, and so um, as, you, as we sing out to God, and, and I, you know, we're singing these songs to him, and we're feeling all the things that we're feeling and attaching them to our lives, like that's what David's doing. And if you only know the story of King David and the kids' stories, like David and Goliath, right, and David and his mighty man, and you're like, David had it all together. David was perfect. And he was not. David had a dark side. And the scriptures, when you dive into them, are very clear. And if you read all the way through, it's hard to even like David sometimes. And yet he was a man after God's own heart. And yet he did amazing things through God. 
But here's how he felt when he was going through it. In Psalm 38, 4, he says, my guilt overwhelms me. It is a burden too heavy to bear. Right? He's, he's going through this. He's trying to figure it out himself. And I think the reason that God allows him to write this down and preserves it for Scripture is that it gives all of us hope that, man, I felt that. I felt guilt that was too heavy to bear. And it messes with your head. Um, there's a story about a, an Air Force major. He, he had entered in 1959. He, it was his second stint in a Texas mental institution. He had tried to commit suicide twice. He had uh, been caught this time for robbery and for forgery. And the weird thing about his arrest is that every time he committed a crime, there was never any chance of him benefiting from it. It was super obvious he'd be caught, and there was no chance it would work. And that was the crimes he chose to commit. And he'd, he'd go to jail, and they'd send him to, to get a, you know, a psyche eval because he was trying to kill himself. And he's drinking heavily. He'd lost his marriage. His life was just in shambles. And what's weird is that 15 years before that, he was on a promising career track with a healthy family, and things were going really, really well. But also 15 years ago, he was the pilot who scouted Hiroshima, who studied the weather patterns and, say, and gave the all clear to go ahead and drop the bomb. He didn't drop the bomb, but he, he, made the, he made the way. And that wrecked him. And the guilt of that led him to subconsciously just punish himself for years after that, committing crimes, again, that he had every chance of getting caught from and no chance of benefiting from, so that he could beat himself up enough to maybe overcome that guilt. And man, can I relate to that. Right, of, of just feeling bad about something and then beating myself up. Sometimes I'm, I'm the older brother. Sometimes I'd, I'd shove my brother too hard or I'd hurt him. And then what would I do? Hit me, man. Just hit me. Like, don't tell dad. Just hit me. Right? Like, punish me. I want the punishment. Like, I've done this wrong. And, and, and there's this weird interaction of, like, guilt, but, like, trying not to get in trouble. And it, it never works. It never, it never makes you feel better. No matter what you do to yourself, no matter what you invite other people to do to, do to you, it never makes you feel better. It never assuages that guilt that you're feeling. But God does have an answer, and David got to experience both sides of that, right? He's the guy who says in Psalm 38, my guilt overwhelms me. But in Psalm 32, he says, what happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven? What joys when sins are covered up? What relief for those who have confessed their sins and God has cleared their record? Right? He says, look, we have a choice. I can live with an overwhelming burden of guilt or we can have God remove that burden. I can live with the depression and the detachment from other people and the paranoia that comes from feeling guilty all the time. Or I can make choices that allow me to interact with God and, and welcome that, that freeing relief that he brings, the happiness and the joy of having that guilt taken away. And it's a choice that we have to make and that we have to take part in. And I get that it's not as easy as just flipping a switch and saying, bam, I don't feel guilty anymore. I get that. But there are steps that we can take. There are real things we can do with a real God that can get you to where you are not poisoned by your guilt anymore. And so let's look at some important information about guilt and faith forgiveness. And, and I hope as we go through these that you'll experience, you'll choose to experience the positive side of guilt, which is a weird thing to say. And I'm going to explain that more here in a minute. But the negative side of guilt always brings collateral damage, right? When you're living in your guilt, it hurts me and it hurts everyone around me, right? It, it affects the people around me when we do things. Um, as a result of that guilt, that, that guy who was going through it, man, he's, you know, his family was hurt by that. Everyone around him was being hurt, and he was being hurt most of all. And there was a healthier way. So let's, here's some important information about guilt and forgiveness. First of all, guilt is a tool that is used by God. In the moments where David was feeling low, that was not necessarily a bad thing. And we live in a world that, that says that any time you make someone feel bad, that is bad. Right, that is a wrong thing. I was raised to believe that anytime I, 
I did something that led to a negative feeling from someone else that that was my fault. That was a bad thing to do. I should have done something that made them feel good, right? It was all positive affirmation and no negative reinforcement. And, and that's what I thought was normal. That's what I thought was true. And it led to me to feel very guilty um, when I did something that made someone feel bad. But here's what David said in Psalm 32, 4. He says, the pain never led up for your hand of conviction. He's talking about God. He says, God's hand of conviction was heavy on my heart. My strength was sapped. My inner life dried up like a spiritual drought within my soul. That, that not all guilt is just unhealthily beating yourself up. Sometimes guilt is the right response when you've made a bad decision. And here's why that is. Because when we feel guilty, God uses my guilt, ideally, to convict me and to change me. It is a good thing to know when I've done something wrong, right? And when he uses that, that guilt as my warning sign to say, man, I am convicted by that. I know that I need to do something differently now, and I need to change because of that, right? It's a red flag. It's like, man, okay, I've got to do something about this. I don't address problems that I don't know exist, right? If you've got a friend, and you've got a catchphrase that is deeply offensive to them, right? It's just something you say all the time, but it drives them nuts, and they hate it, and they never tell you, right? You ever have those times where you know something's wrong, and they just keep saying it's fine? You're like, I know there's something, right? Like, I would rather know if you tell me even if I didn't mean to, at least I can change the behavior now instead of driving this wedge every time I say this thing that drives you crazy, right? Like it's better to know what we're doing wrong so we can address it because we're never going to change what we don't know is a problem, right? So it, guilt is used by God as a warning sign to say, hey, we've got to do something about this. But guilt is also a tool that is misused by Satan, right? God means it for good. God means it to, to bring something healthy about. But Satan will take all these things that are good and he'll try to make them bad. He'll try to make it a trap. God wants to make it something that moves us forward. Satan wants us to, it to be something that makes us stuck. There was a church in Corinth, in uh, Corinth, Greece, and uh, it was, Corinth was a wild place. They had uh, one of their traditional forms of worship was you would go and you would sleep with a temple prostitute to worship the God, and so you go into all of that, and you bring, you're like, praise Jesus, monogamy, you know, like all these things that are like, oh no, Right, And so you get some churches that are like Bible Belt, everything's good, we're all going to put on shiny happy faces and, and pretend like everything's okay. In Corinth, they knew they were wrecked. And so they're like, man, we all know we're saved by the grace of God, and so they're grace, 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 which is good and, and, and a good thing to be excited about. But they went to the point where they didn't want anyone to feel guilty. And so there's a man in their church that is sleeping with his stepmother. And they're like, grace, 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 everything's good, nothing to see here. And Paul's like, even the worldly people around you are shocked by the stuff you're doing, right? Like, there's a problem here. Like, this is messed up to a degree that, that is, this is not a time to be like, hey, everything's cool here, nothing to worry about. And so he says, you need to remove this man from your fellowship. You need to put him aside and say, you cannot be around us while you're acting a fool like this, because we need you to see the consequences of your actions. We need you to know that it's, it's harmful for us to treat you like everything's okay when everything is not okay, right? And that's true in life in general. If you've got a kid who's making horrible decisions, right? If they are running toward the stove, you don't be like, man, you're running fast. Good job, right? No, you stop them and you arrest them from that. And that, even if that feels harsh and like you are depriving them of the desire to pursue this flame that's so exciting, right? Like it's not good to cheer them on in that effort. And so they put him aside and they say, you cannot be around while you're making these decisions. And we're doing this out of love. And, he, and it works. It convicts him. And it, and it causes him to change. And he makes good decisions. And he comes back. And they still keep him at arm's length. And so Paul says, hey, here's the move. 
right? Here's the critical turn because I'm sure he hurt some people on the way out, right? I'm sure, right, negative guilt affects everyone. And so I'm sure it burned some bridges when he went out. And so now he's come back and the whole church has heard what he's done and they feel a certain kind of way about it maybe. And he's got to come back into this and that's super awkward, right? And so Paul writes, hey, now instead you should forgive and console him so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Right? The goal was not the guilt. The guilt is just the tool to get him back healthy. Right? But once that's been accomplished, then let's stop this. Now there really is nothing to see. Now it's something we can celebrate and say, hey, my brother who was off the rails is restored, and we're back at it, and we're getting after it, and we can praise God for that. But Satan will use the, the thing that was meant to convict and change him And if it keeps going that way, it can be something that isolates and brings him right back to where he was before, right? We had a a girl in our campus ministry in Florida who um, burned a lot of bridges. She made a lot of bad decisions, and she hurt a lot of people as she went out. And when she came back, and she went out for about six months, came back, truly changed, truly repentant. She's faithful to this day. But when she came back, there were some people who had some feelings about that and were upset that we had let her back, that we had embraced her back as as a family. And we had conversations, and we... We talked about what coming back would look like, and she did everything we asked her to do. But at the end of the day, there were some people who said, no matter what she's done, she has not been punished enough for me. And they left. And that could have crushed her. I'm glad she stayed faithful, because when you come back, when you try really hard and you come back when you're embarrassed, the, the, your main fear is that people will be like, no, you're not good enough. And people did that. Like, it was her worst fear, and she stuck it out. And I'm proud of her for that. But man, like, it, you can mess some people up when, when God's done his work and you keep punishing them. Because God uses guilt to correct and to change, but Satan uses guilt to condemn and incapacitate me, right? He says, you, are, you will never be enough. You, will, you can't show your face again, right? You can never come back from that. And that's what he does. He condemns us. Satan is known as the accuser. And when we let him work on us, then we start accusing ourselves and saying, repeating all that stuff that, that we're afraid people will say to us. We start saying it to ourselves. And then he incapacitates me and he freezes me and I, I just can't move forward because uh, I'm not worth saving. And that's the message I hear over and over again when I let him reign, right? And so it can be used either way, but here's the end goal. God doesn't want you to be guilty. That's not the destination. He wants you to be forgiven. He doesn't want you to be guilty. Guilt is, it's like that you guys have a, on, your, on your car, you get the red light, right? You get the orange lights, like change oil soon. You're like, I could give it like another probably thousand miles and be okay, right? Don't do that, but you could, right? <laughs> You get the red light, that means stop, because if you go any further, your engine will explode, right? Like, bad things are coming, right? Now, there's several approaches you can take to that. You can live in the guilt of it, right? And you could put a picture in front of it, and then it goes away, right? (laughs) I've seen people use that technique. It does not end well, right? But the message of the red light is stop now so you don't do major damage, and that's what guilt is. It's not, the red light is not designed to stay on forever. And when you drive with the red light on forever, you know the disaster's coming, right? And you just live in that all the time. It's just this impending sense of doom. And that's what guilt is like for us. When we're hanging on to that, we're just living with a sense of doom. When are they going to find out? When's it all going to come? When's the other shoe going to drop, right? But when you deal with it and you experience the freedom of not having the red light, like I did it, I saved up, I paid for the thing, someone blessed me, like I was able to get it done. And now my engine probably won't explode. And that's a freeing thing, right? I could drive for miles, guilt-free, right? And that's how our life is as well. In Micah 7.18, and Micah is a book, a prophetic book, where it talks about the justice of God. And it doesn't hide from the fact that God will, will punish when he needs to. 
But here's what else it says. It says, where is the God who can compare with you? Right? Our God is incomparable. There's no one like him. And what does Micah say? What, what leads him to say, man, there's no God like you? He says, there is no one who can compare with you, wiping the slate clean of guilt, for mercy is your specialty. That's what you love most. Right? God is fair and he is just, but he is dying for excuses to be patient and merciful. I love this song that we sang, like, your goodness is running after me. He, can't, he is desperate for opportunities to be good to us. He can't wait. He'll make us feel guilty if we have to, if he has to. But man, he'd always rather bring forgiveness. He'd always rather bring healing and redemption and closeness. That's the goal. You know, Paul says in that Corinthians letter, he says, man, I, I know that hurt. I know that hurt when I wrote that letter. But I'm, I'm okay with it. I didn't want to hurt you. But I'm glad I did because now we're tight. Now we're, now we're okay. Now you're heading toward healing and not destruction. And it was worth it. And that's God's perspective on it too. So how do we make choices? How do we make choices that banish guilt and bring grace? I'm going to bring you four choices that we can make that will help us have this healthy relationship. And I had to make these choices in order to have this healthy relationship with guilt that I never had before. Um, So first of all, I need to choose to admit my guilt. In other words, confession. I need to admit my guilt and be open with it and share what's going on. You will never deal with things that you have not opened up about. As a child, we feel like we've got to put conditions on our confessions, right? What's the number one thing you hear when, when two siblings are fighting? He started it, right? <laughs> That's, I have said that more times than I can count, right? And, and everyone I know has as a kid, right? We've got to put, I know I did it. You're not saying you didn't do it, but he's really to blame because he started it. And we feel like we've got to hedge it and put some conditions around it. But here's how we need to admit our guilt. Admitting requires me to be honest. I have to be honest, and here's why. Not because you'll get in trouble if you're not honest, but because when we don't fully own our mistakes, hear me, church, when you don't fully own your mistakes, you leave a little batch of shame left behind for Satan to mess around with, right? You won't be healed because they forgave me, but they didn't know that, and I don't know if they would if they knew that too. And so you really haven't solved the problem. You've still got that thing that's separating you from people, separating you from your God. And I have lived that where I've, I've admitted part of it and not all of it. And it left this little piece of shame, that little something else to be guilty about. The only way to be fully forgiven is to be fully honest. Don't give, don't give into the blackmail that Satan's trying to play on you, right? Just lay it out. Be honest. In Psalm 32, three through five, this is what David says, right? He's, David is dealing with, with adultery and murder and cowardice. These are hard things to admit. Right? He, was, he was the king. He was the God's representative to Israel. And this was going to change the way people felt about him. They were going to look at him different after admitting some of this stuff. And so he didn't for a while. He said, there was a time where I wouldn't admit what a sinner I was. My, dishonest, my dishonesty made me miserable and filled my days with frustration. All day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water on a sunny day until I finally admitted all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. I said to myself, I will confess them to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Right? He says the sin wasn't what was hurting him most. It was the dishonesty. Right? And sometimes we do that. We've, we've counseled couples that have, have dealt with adultery, and then sometimes they feel like, man, I'm going to shield myself and maybe you, and, and I'm going to give you bit by bit. And then like three months later, another step comes out. And three months later, another piece of it comes out. And it's like, man, you're just pulling at the wound every time. Like, it's not helpful. And we think, like, you can't handle the truth or I can't handle the truth. But the truth is, God knows all of it and you're not hiding anything from Him. It is hard to confess and be honest. 
but trying to say, what does the Bible say? It says, those who seek to save their life will lose it, right? But those who, who give their life for me will save it, right? If, when we try to protect ourselves and manage our guilt, that's when we get into trouble. So admitting requires me to be honest, and admitting requires me to be humble. That's why we're dishonest. I'm dishonest because my pride says, I cannot handle you knowing that about me. That's why I lie. Right? When I lie, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to manage my ego, trying to manage my image. I need to be humble. In Psalm 51, 3 through 4, and verse 6, it says, For I admit my shameful deed. It is against you and you alone that I have sinned and did this terrible thing. You saw it all. He's talking to God. You saw it all, and your sentence against me is just. You deserve honesty from the heart. Here's what he's talking about here. In Psalm 51, this is right after he had to admit that he had an affair with the wife of one of his best friends. His soldiers, David's soldiers, who he used to go out to battle with, were, in, were at war, and David's sitting at home safe while they're putting their lives on the line. And in the middle of that, he cheats on one of his best friends with his wife. And not only that, to cover it up, she gets pregnant. To cover it up, he tries to get the soldier to come back and lay with his wife. He wouldn't do it. He makes the right choice and says, no, my guys are out there in the field. I'm not going to be comfortable while they're sleeping in tents, right? I'm going to sleep on a tent in a tent outside the gates. So David's plan to cover up doesn't work. So then he sends orders back with him. He has him carry his own orders that he be killed in the next battle. That's messed up, right? That's what David's admitting here. And it's hard to admit stuff like that. But if you leave any part of that out, then you give Satan ammunition to play on. You give him something to play with and say, man, if they knew that, they wouldn't look at you the same. If they knew that, you couldn't come back from that. So he opens it up. In 2 Chronicles 33, 23, it says, But unlike his father Manasseh, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Amon increased his guilt. Manasseh, Amon's father, humbled himself before God and was forgiven. Amon lied and doubled down to protect his image, and it made things even worse. It increased his guilt. Defending yourself, now you're lying on top of, right? That's what, what politicians get popped for all the time, right? They commit some minor infraction, then they lie about it, and they go to jail for the lie, right? Like, if they just opened up about the lie, it wouldn't have been that bad, but now they perjured themselves, and that's what we do with God. We, you know, the, the sin often was easy to forgive, and then we lie, and we defend ourselves, and here's the problem. When I defend myself, I harden my heart, right? God is bringing truth from me, me, and I am holding up a shield to that truth. God is bringing the avenue of healing, and I am saying, I resist that healing. I am protecting myself from God, and that is not the thing to protect yourself from, right? You don't, when someone brings, when the doctor comes, and he's like, I've got the medicine, you don't be like, get behind me, Satan, right? Like, that's not the move, right? Like, he's healing. He's coming and bringing healing. We've got to be humble enough to accept it and not try to protect ourselves. In James 4, 6, it says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, we think of grace as forgiveness, but grace is also the ability to live a life that is different, to live a life that's different from that day forward. Grace means that not only are my sins forgiven, but I can, I can be a different person after this. And not only can I be different, I can be washed all the way. I can be as if it never happened. And that's wild to think about. We're going to talk about that more in a minute, but we're going to remember right now the reason that that's true. We're going to take communion, which is where we remember the time that Jesus sacrificed his body and, and shed his blood so that we could be all the way forgiven. Not a little bit forgiven, but like it never happened. Um, so we've got communion set up in the back. Let's break bread. Let's share a cup and talk about um, and pray about and, and sing about the love of Jesus that made that possible.
Father God, thank you for forgiving us all the way. Thank you for a son who loved us enough to make us pure in a way that we never thought was possible. That, that when his love ran red, Father, you allowed forgiveness and peace and healing to come through us. And it says that by his wounds, we are healed. And so we remember that today and we live a life. Um, I pray that we would live a life that honors that sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. So if I'm going to choose forgiveness and have a healthy relationship with guilt, I'm going to make sure that I admit my guilt, first of all, honestly and humbly. Second of all, if I'm going to choose to have a healthy relationship with forgiveness, then I will choose to ask God to help me, right? And I would even say um, that I would seek after God to help me, that I would pursue God to help me. In Psalm 51, again, it's written right after David is confronted with his worst mistake, and he cries out in prayer for God to help him with three different things. He asks God, which is our key, to help him with three things. First of all, he says, I ask, he asks God to help him have a pure heart. In Psalm 51.10, he says, create in me a pure heart, God. He says, I don't want to just address the specific event, right? I don't want to just say, I'll never sleep with my best friend's wife and have him killed again, right? He acknowledges, like, my, there was a heart condition that led me to make that choice, right? There was something going on in my heart that, that made that okay to me or made that acceptable to me. And God, I need you to deal with that, the root cause, the character of my heart. He says, you know, it says, I ask God to help me have a right spirit. What does a right spirit look like? It says, and make my spirit right again. Keep me strong by giving me a willing spirit, right? Shame makes us want to quit. You know, when you crash enough times after resolving to do better, at some point you just don't see the point of trying anymore. And David wanted to have a heart that, that really wanted to try, that was willing to give it another shot, that trusted God enough to keep going. And then he said, I asked God to help me with obedience, right? To, to help me not only have a pure heart that wants to do good and a, a right spirit that's willing to try, but God, at the end of the day, I'm going to need you to push me over the finish line and, and get me to obedience because I just can't do it on my own, right? That is the mantra of anyone who's ever been through addiction right? No amount of willpower is going to get you there. You can't just will your way through it. You're going to need to be open, and you're going to need community, and you're going to need the help of God. I just can't do it. I need you to help me with my obedience. In Psalm 32, 8 through 9, the Lord who knows us better than anyone, he's been around humans for forever, and, and this is what he says, I will teach you the way you should go. I will instruct you and advise you. Don't be stupid like a horse or a mule, which must be controlled with a bit and bridle to make it submit right? I have, man, I'm hard to lead sometimes, right? You ever try to make a horse go somewhere that it doesn't want to go? It's like three of you, right? Like it's not happening. And so you got to grab that thing and you're like trying to pull it along. And, it's, and that's how I am. Sometimes God's got to like, let's go. Like this is so much better for you. The food is here. What, what are you doing, right? The healing is here. What are you doing? And he's got to yank me along. Just don't be stupid. Like let's, let's go with the easy way. And when I'm addressing the inner man, when I'm addressing my heart and my spirit, then it's going to show up in my, the obedience is going to show up. Real submission is going to show up in my life. In Proverbs 28, 13, it says, you will never succeed in life if you try to hide your sin. That's a big thing, right? You will never succeed in life if you try to hide your sin. Confess them and give them up, then God will show mercy to you, right? Not just talking about your sins, confess them and give them up. Take the steps needed to make sure you don't go back, right? And that starts with asking God to help me. And it continues, number three, with if I'm going to have a healthy relationship with forgiveness and guilt, then I will choose to allow people to help me, 
I will ask God to help me, and I will allow people to help me. And you might even write down, I will, I will invite people to help me. I'll go out of my way to try to get people to help me. I won't just allow them when they show up. In Psalm 51.1, the beginning of this psalm where David's, you know, asking all this cool stuff from God, right? He's like, man, give me a pure heart and give me a willing spirit and help me obey. And I look at them like, man, I wish that's how I reacted every time I felt guilty. Well, here's what it doesn't necessarily spell out for you. It was almost a year before he got there. That for almost a year, he wrote those other psalms where he was talking about his guilt overwhelming him and making self-destructive decisions and hating himself for what he'd done. And here's the turning point. Here's what shifted him from, I am overwhelmed with my guilt, to God, please help me with this. It says in Psalm 51.1, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan was the turning point, his friend coming to him. And Nathan comes and he tells him a story. And he says, King David, we have a problem. There's a man in your kingdom who doesn't have much. He's very poor. He's got one lamb. And he loves that lamb. It's like a pet. Like it's just like family. It, it sleeps in the house with him. Like it's like his kid. He cares about this lamb. He, he cares for him. It's his precious lamb that is the only one he's got. And you've got this other, his neighbor, who's very, very wealthy and has fields and a huge ranch and, and all this property and all this livestock. And he wanted to feed his guests, his honored guests, some lamb for dinner. And so instead of sacrificing one of his own sheep, he went and he took that poor man's sheep and he took the only one he had and he fed, him, he fed his guests that for dinner. And now this man has nothing. And David said, that is outrageous. That man should be killed. In fact, have him pay back four times whatever the cost was of what he, what he stole. And Nathan turns to him and says, you're that man. You could have had any woman in the kingdom. You're the king. Who would say no? And yet you had to take that one man's wife that he was faithful to and that he cared about, that was the one you had to have. And when that moment comes for you, help doesn't always feel like help, does it? <laughs> when your friend Nathan comes up to you and says, you're the man, you're the woman, you're the one in the story, you're the one who's, who's causing some of this, it would be easy for King David to say, who are you that you speak to me like that? But instead, he chose to see it as an act of love, and that was the turning point for him. And for so many of us, the turn comes when people enter the picture. He had access to God that whole time. God was just as open to being prayed to the whole time, but he started praying for something healthy when a friend came and talked to him. And James 5.16, it says, If you have sinned, you should tell each other what you have done. Then you can pray for one another and be healed. It's not so someone can keep track of you, it's not so someone can wag their finger at you or make you feel bad. It's so that you can find healing. It's so you can be well. It, it shouldn't have to come for the confrontation, right? It is exhausting to pull information out of someone that should be offering it freely. When the guilty person holds out and treats someone else as the enemy, that you just end up doing more damage. And again, you're just left saying the same thing that God does. It doesn't have to come to this, right? Like God knows it all. There's a reason that God, we talked last week and said, hey, when God, when you are baptized, when you surrender to God, God adds you to the church, right? You don't choose whether you join the church or not. God says, bam, you're in the church. You're part of the family now. You're a child of mine, right? And one child of mine doesn't get to see, you know, my, my, my daughter can't say to my son, you're not my brother anymore. Like, I'm the dad. You don't get to make that call, right? You don't have that right. We don't get to make that call. Our father made that call. We're in the church. Now you can choose 
whether you connect with the church. You can choose whether you accept the help that that blessing was meant to bring. But the reason he made sure that it was available is because we desperately need people, right? We need to choose to allow people in our life to help us. And then finally, if I'm going to have a healthy relationship with guilt and forgiveness, then I will choose to acquire and accept God's forgiveness. I will choose to acquire and accept God's forgiveness. I will do what needs to be done for God's forgiveness to happen in my life. Because if you are not forgiven, then someone coming and telling you everything's okay is not good, right? That's not, they can't honestly, you won't believe it. They can't mean it, right? It's only good news if you've acquired and accepted God's forgiveness. The problem is not that saved people are good and lost people are bad. It's that saved people are forgiven and unsaved people haven't been yet. And sin is the barrier that causes that. It's the barrier to our relationship with God. It's what drives us apart. It's what's what makes us, it's why Adam and Eve hid in the garden, right? It separates us from God. In Acts 2.38, Peter's preaching to this crowd, and he's, he's letting them know, either because of your sin or because of the, the things you yelled when he was on trial, you're responsible for Jesus being crucified. It says, be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. That this repentance, this change of heart and of mind is what's going to make the difference. That when we surrender to him, he can forgive you in a way that really brings relief. And I think about the man and the, the story we told in the beginning, that guy who kept punishing himself for the things that he'd done. And that's how we are before God. If we don't really believe that God has forgiven us, then we feel like we've got to bring justice on ourselves. And I, you know, so many of us have dealt with abuse that we've felt like we deserve, right, because of what we've done. We've dealt with, with consequences and, and dealt with them for way too long. But it's like, you know what? It's probably about right. You know, this miserable life that I'm leading, this isolation that I'm going through, this lack of compassion that I'm feeling is probably about fair for what I did. And when you live with that for so long, man, you, you just accept some of these lies, and that's not the life that God led you to. That's not the life that God is calling you to. There is a forgiveness that you can know, that you can know that you're forgiven. What did, what did Josh say that allowed him to keep moving forward? He said, the choices my dad made and the choices that I'm making are drawing us both to God. And that is more powerful than death, more powerful than the grave. There's real hope there. He can launch off of that and do things that he could not do otherwise. When I know that I'm forgiven, when I believe my father who says I am forgiven, and I don't keep hitting myself to try to make up for it, when I really believe that, then I will launch off of things that I never was able to before. I'm going to open up in a way that I never was before. I'm going to accept love that I shoved away before. I'm going to stop guarding myself against the healing that God is trying to bring to my life. I'm going to experience a forgiveness that is better than anything I ever had before. I love what God says in Isaiah 118. And he says it in such a cool way because he knows us. You know, whether you've, you've tried to do it on your own forever and you've been held down, whether you've been managing your own guilt and you can't seem to get past it, or whether you're a believer who's made some terrible mistakes, this is the message that God has for you. In Isaiah 1.18, he says, come now, let's argue this out. God says, let's talk. No matter how deep the stain of your sin, I can remove it. I can make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. 
Even if you are stained as red as crimson, I can make you white as wool. You can read that verse and you can scream at God. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. You don't know me. And what God says is, let's argue about that, right? And when you argue with God, you lose 100% of the time. If you feel like you are not worth the effort, if you feel like you cannot be forgiven for the things that have been done to you or the things that you have done or both, God would like to argue that. He's got something to say about that. And he, guess what? He is right 100% of the time. And praise God for that. There is nowhere that you can go that the arm, the arm of the Lord is never too short to reach. And his ear is never too dull to hear your cry. But we have a choice. We can choose forgiveness or we can choose to live in our guilt. And guilt will wear you out, but the only way out is through. The only way out is to surrender and say, though I am exhausted and I've tried 10,000 things, I'm going to try 10,001 because I trust that you're going to bring healing on the other end of it. And that promise is made to those who have never surrendered to Christ in their life and it's made to those who have surrendered to Christ and are struggling still. It's, it's there for everyone. That you don't have to be worn out. That God is there bringing the healing. And you just got to make the choices that lead that way by, by being open about it, by allowing God to help you, by choosing to allow people to help you, and by acquiring and doing the things necessary to pursue that healing. Let's pray. Father God, it is, it is hard to be honest. I am one who has struggled so much with honesty, struggled to trust that if I reveal all of myself, that you'll still love me and that others will love me at the end of it. Um, but I'm fooling myself because I know you know all. And so, Lord, we have a decision to make now, and that there's a decision that we can make as, as, we, as we think about how open we're going to be, Lord, how much we're going to allow you in. And I pray that each one of us would give up our management of our guilt, the ways that we try to protect ourselves and shield ourselves and, and hide ourselves, or that we would allow you to strip all of that away, no matter how uncomfortable it is, and that we would allow ourselves to be loved as we truly are with all of our mistakes and all of our hurt and all of our baggage, and that we would be truly free in your arms. Thank you for accepting us as your children, even when we were your enemy, even when we didn't believe it, even when we didn't deserve it. You are a father who is better than any other. In Jesus' name, amen or from our members, a financial offering for the work of the church. Um, for our guests, what we would love is instead of money, if you'd write down in your communication card that's in your bulletin, and just let us know, what do you need? Do you need to accept the gift that God has offered you in baptism? Do you need to study the Bible and, and find out what those steps toward healing look like? Do you need a friend to walk alongside you and spend time with you? We're here for that um, as, we, uh, as we take up that offering. Please let us know.